0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, where I had the esteemed pleasure of interviewing an old friend of mine from China, Mr. Bertrand Schmidt, the co-founder and chairman of App Annie and co-host of the podcast Tech Deciphered. We talk about how Bertrand and his team have spent the last decade creating the industry's most complete mobile performance platform while being based in Beijing, raising $160 million in funding along the way, and why it was important that a significant part of that amount come from local Chinese investors. We look back at the evolution of mobile in China and talk about how far they've come in the app industry and discuss tech areas that China has now taken the global lead in innovation in. We also talk about the two biggest mobile players in China, Huawei and Xiaomi, and what the future holds for them given the relatively harsh climate they face outside China. Enjoy.
1: Anybody with some scale can build an off-the-shelf phone based on off-the-shelf components. At some point, it's your operational efficiency first and for all. So it's a bit more dangerous game. I think the ones that are more vertically approaching phone manufacturing from Samsung to Huawei to Apple have a big advantage and they can drive innovation much better. They don't depend on the latest design from Qualcomm. I'm more bullish on the ones who who control more their own destiny, but obviously in that game only Apple fully controls their own destiny because they also own the
2: Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley. And welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies.
0: Bertrand, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Todd.
1: Thanks for having me today.
0: We go back a ways, and we'll get into that later. But why don't we start with a bit of your background? How did you end up in China? What were you doing there in the early days?
1: Yeah, sure. My my first trip in China was in 2004. I visited Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, um, I like it. Uh, I like the entrepreneurial uh, spirit at the time. But in 2004, I felt it was there was not enough tech uh, for me. I've always been working in the tech industry. That's what I love. That's my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went back in 2007 and uh, I felt a difference already. More, uh, probably coming from more of these investments, some more local companies that were starting to get uh, bigger. As a, a successful tech business and and so that there was more ability to hire people senior senior professionals in that industry that I was not sure was there just a few years before, so starting that point, I made the, the decision to to move to china and to give you a bit more of my background I'm French uh, so european I studied in the u uh, I studied in the u s did my MBA at Wharton. Uh, but even if I have a background in um, computer science engineering, so for me, I've lived and worked in in Europe, in US. I felt that Asia was that last big piece that could be very interesting to to work and live in. That I don't, re- I didn't really know that much. So for me, spending more time in Asia was part of growing as a as a professional. And I felt that definitely China was one of the most exciting places, especially if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, given uh, how many entrepreneurs you can find in China and how fast the country was developing, especially at this time.
0: I was going to ask you, did you move around a bit in the early days and could you tell whether there was a difference in the entrepreneurial or innovation spirit in different cities? Hmm.
1: I mean, me, what I liked at the time in China, that was the only place I I knew, at least at the time where I could meet entrepreneurs with uh, three business cards uh, (laughs) running three (laughs) different business or one business card, you know, with uh, three different (laughs) business uh, on it. Yeah. Uh, I've I've seen two in many other places, but never three that, that I only saw in China. Um, and, and I think, yes, yeah, so of course, I, I feel that you have differences, as you know, uh, Shanghai is much more international. Uh, Beijing is mm-hmm. less international, but much more tech heavy. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I spent out of six years in China, five years in Beijing, uh, one year in Shanghai. Obviously, if you're looking more for, for finance function, uh, Hong Kong or trade, uh, Hong Kong is probably a, a great place. So yeah. so that's uh, and that's probably why I ended up in uh, in Beijing. It's it's not the weather. It's I don't think it's the best weather you can find in China. But if you're in the tech industry, that's, that's the best place. As you probably know, I believe 50 percent of all this investment in China is um, is done uh, to, towards uh, Beijing based uh, companies.
0: You are co-founder and former CEO of App Annie. Tell us not only what App Annie is or does, in in your own words, so that I don't butcher it myself, <laughs> uh, but also, were you in China when you started it? What were the symptoms of the problem that you were seeing that led you to build this solution?
1: Yes. So I've been in the mobile industry since '99. Um, so I was there, and not just mobile industry, but the mobile internet and mobile application space since 99 so basically if you are from europe you might remember wap the wireless application protocol if you were in the us you might remember blue if you were in japan you might remember imod so i was in the middle of all of this since um, since 99 and i i saw it through growing paints and at the same time, I, I saw the the regular fixed broadband internet uh, getting better and better and more interesting in terms of business opportunities. Um, up to a point, when it's seven, I was starting to think, hey, you know what? Maybe I should just go to the reg go to the regular internet industry because opportunities are, are better there, and and it just doesn't seem to never really work um, in terms of value proposition in that industry, except for carriers, obviously, and some handset manufacturers. But the overall software and publishing industry was really nowhere where it was really that much of a good business. So, but then the iPhone came um, in 2007, and more important came in 2008, uh, the App Store. And having been so long in that space, I, I saw very quickly that it was uh, the best invention you could make because it was solving at, in one, in one go. Three, three big issues. One was um, discovery. Uh, as consumer, you want to discover content easily. Two is distribution. Uh, if you have found the content, you want to be able to install it easily, access it easily. And three, monetization. Uh, you want people to be able to pay easily for stuff they bought and for publishers to, to sell easily what they have developed. And so for me, that was pretty dramatic because I was seeing on one side, the mobile internet was very poor experience. On the other hand, uh, mobile apps before then were were not really exciting. Distribution was lacking. You had some portals, but you still had to complex installation process monetization was not included. So I got very, very excited when I saw that and pretty quickly I was like, I have to do something in the the mobile app uh, space. And early in the 2010, early 2010, uh, that's when I, I decided to start a penny. And, and in terms of mindset, so that was what the app store was was solving. But what I felt is that I was trying to understand more this market to see how I could I could build something in that industry. And I realized I I, I was not really fully understanding this industry. What was working? Not working? What was growing? What was not growing? What was truly making money? What was not truly really making money? So I was looking for market data on this industry and I realized there was no reliable market data on the industry. And on the other hand, what I saw is that Apple and others were providing some very limited tools for application developers, publishers to to manage their apps on their portals and uh, app stores. And and I realized that there is also an opportunity there to, to help developers have better tools, not to develop on the engineering side, but on the publishing side. So that's how App Annie was started on two sides. Two angles, one, understanding, trying to provide answers to where is the market going. And two, trying to provide tools to developers, but business tools, to help them uh, better understand what's happening with uh, with the apps on the business side.
0: You were in China, though, when you developed this company, correct?
1: Yes, I, I, I arrived in China in January 2009. Yeah, and we started the business in uh, in twenty
0: ten. Right. Yeah. So this, I, I, and forgive me for you know being a little bit like adolescently naive about this, but uh, you're doing a tech company. Fair to say, you know, doing a lot of data and analytics uh, for the app world, uh, generally speaking. What was it like to try to do this globally from inside China? Because, and I'm just thinking of the Great Firewall. What was it like? Was it? Was it? Was it? Is it better now? Was it? Was it worse back then? Is it even a thing? Is it naive to think that that may have been problematic for you at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, it has never been a big, uh, big problem because, as you probably know, there are a lot of big companies that have big teams, big staff in China, mm-hmm. and these companies are foreign companies, obviously, especially American ones, from uh, Microsoft to uh, Google at the times to Yahoo to. Now, one of the big biggest SaaS companies, Zoom, has uh, a lot of staff in, in China. So for us, it was a bit the same. We we were not focused at specifically on the Chinese market. From day one, we were focused on global markets. Yeah. In 2010, there was not so much uh, smartphones in China. It started in 2012, 2013 to, to be really a thing in China. Um, so for us, we are focused at least early on already on the foreign markets from uh, US, Japan, Europe. Um, and um, and two engineers in China are very talented, know how to use the technologies that are available in different places. And from day one, uh, we were communicating in, uh, in English in, inside the, the teams. We were having servers, all, all of them based in the US. Um, so so we just work as a um, very native uh, cloud-centric uh, type of company uh, with um, no no real hardware of our own, everything hosted, working remotely with everything. So so it was relatively easy, I would say. The, the only issue, obviously, is that s- some stuff might not be accessible from China, but then you might have access to some VPN and stuff, uh, at least for professional reasons.
0: How strong was the mobile, and let's just say the app, as they say in China, APP? Yeah, sure. uh, <laughs>
1: we are called APP this... any in China, not App any. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was going to say, it took me a while to kind of get over and understand when people kept saying APP. I'm like, APP? Is that WPP? Like, I, I'm, I'm confused. No, they just meant app, but that's how they say app. How, how strong was China's app game? Back in those early days of, you know, 2010, 2011, and how fast did they catch up and even overtake some of what the West was doing? Initially,
1: China was not really there. China was about more about cheaper funds, uh, was about SMS. Um, so very few smartphones. And when the iPhone came out, it was very really expensive so it, it was very limited it really took 2013 something like this that people started to to buy iphones and more important that um, local chinese manufacturers uh, like xiaomi uh, started to provide um, cost-effective alternatives and on the android side initially at last you you at least you had um, samsung uh, but now there's less of samsung so i think the rise of the local chinese android manufacturers was really big to transition China to smartphone. Um, but Apple was definitely the one to, to start on that that growth, at least early on. And Apple could do it because at significant price point, because initially in China, it was seen as a luxury good. And as you know, Chinese don't mind spending big money on uh, luxury items, mm-hmm. so in a way Apple was surprisingly successful. I mean, unsurprisingly, given that you, they could be seen as a luxury manufacturer, but uh, I guess a lot of people were taken by surprise and that helped China move faster in smartphones that appealed to, to luxury, at least early on. At some point, it had to become a market to be successful in um, in China, obviously.
0: Is that what? Is that was that also the beginning of them starting to be internationally competitive, with their app development game, you know, just even leading up to where, when people started to look at Abani and see Cheetah mobile sitting in near the top of the charts was so surprising to people and they had no idea. How was it such a surprise and how did that industry grow in China?
1: I think the industry changed quite a lot. Early on, you had a lot of uh, smaller companies in China that managed to be quite successful on the global market. Um, some like Cheetah Mobile, exactly, and there were quite a few others. There were also a few companies focused on helping um, international developers go into China. Uh, So that's another angle. And initially, the Tencent of the world didn't have so much success. It's only step by step that WeChat started to, to be successful. And only then, at some point, it's only step by step that Tencent went outside of the PC gaming to to focus really hardcore on um, mobile gaming. So there was a few years, maybe until 2015, where there were a few uh, Chinese companies with success in China and outside China that were relatively small, but pretty quickly a lot of the big Chinese giants uh, of the regular internet started to take over that space uh, from uh, Alibaba to to Tencent to, to Baidu in some ways. So the smaller ones, you still have some that have Chinese roots and are successful globally, but are successful in, in, in local China. But they, less and less, I would say. Now it's a big giant, and and of course, China has something exciting: is that they keep generating big giants, from a Pinduoduo mm-hmm. uh, to a dance.
0: You raised a lot of money uh, over your time, um, something in the neighborhood of 160 million, I, I think. Uh, am I am I getting that correct? Okay. And, you know, at, at, at one point, uh, I think even in 2015, uh, when you came and spoke at one of uh, my conferences, uh, the 10 by 10 that we did in Beijing, you were talking about how you had even back then just raised $6 million um, from IDG. And you actually mentioned during your talk that it was quite intentional and on purpose and important to you to raise from a local... Um, VC that also was globally minded but can you talk again a little bit why you felt that it was important to raise money from within China along with some of the other contributors to your raise uh, that may have come from outside China
1: yeah so yeah, it was a total of 160 million. Um, our, our first Series A was 1 million, very small. And at the time we are calling that Series A. Now it would be precede, I guess. <laughs> uh, it was with IDG Capital. Uh, so they were the, the sole and lead investor on um, this round. And for us, it was quite important because when you are a local company in your local market, you want a local investor to, to start with. And usually they also want uh, local companies because they want to be to be close by. Um, At the same time, for us, we were not the typical Chinese startups. We are not focused on B2C. We are not focused on Chinese market. We are B2B, which was really not typical in China at the time, and focused on global markets. So for us, it was key to work with uh, also an an internationally renowned and famous uh, investor. And Mm -hmm. and IDG Capital was one of the few, uh, obviously, with uh, Sequoia in China, to, to be able to to check that box so far that was very uh, very helpful and uh, I'm thankful for for Xiao Jun, who, who invested in us and is' still on our board from IDG to to have done that and IDG kept investing at different runs uh, series B series C so so there was additional investment from them they have all been following for for a long time. So very happy to have them. I think it's very important and but at the same time the more we we became a fully global company started to open headquarters to move headquarters at some point in to San Francisco in 2014 um we We step by step gathered more t- even more international investors, meaning investor based from outside China. so for our series b we got Craycroft uh, from the u s ventures as well as well as infinity ventures from uh, based in um, in japan from Japan. Investing all over Asia, um, and starting our Series C, we, we were mostly focused on on pure U.S. investors, so, so we got Sequoia U.S. for Series C. For Series D, it was IVP Institutional Venture Partners, um, and Series E was Queen Spring, a uh, fund of fund uh, leading the investment.
0: How different is it to not only negotiate with uh, Chinese VCs versus you know Silicon Valley or international VCs? Um, And what is it like to have them and what do they what what are the different nuances that they bring to the table when they're sitting on your board and they're on your cap table versus, you know, like I said, Silicon Valley, American, European VCs?
1: You know, if you are talking about a truly global Chinese investor, I I think they are very similar versus some other type of investor in terms of mindset, and how they think, and their analysis, and their view of the world. The more local is your investor, the more different it is. So it can be a local Chinese investor, could be a local uh, European investor. But if they are truly international, uh, I would say the difference are not so big. Of course, there are Chinese uh, origins, uh, Chinese culture, mindset. But uh, I would say the differences are not so big. Uh, If we had gone with a a more local Chinese um, VC and investor, uh, that things would have been probably quite different, I guess. But for us, the experience was not so different across investor. Where you see a difference is more per per stage. Um, Some investors are more experts at early stage, some at later stage, some at uh, growth stage so their knowledge and approach regarding product sales final financial metrics are pretty different so i would i would see as long as you work with uh, world-class investors i would say it's more the, the stage where, where you see a big difference
0: have you noticed a change have they grown up you you must have had uh and obviously pitched to a number of of you know very maybe local less uh, globally minded more locally minded Chinese investor investor groups what uh, was their reaction to your pitch how would that differ to the reaction that you might receive in the valley what kind of questions what what did they key in on where a Silicon Valley investor might say okay I want to I want to understand the team uh, I want to understand uh, you know the problem you're trying to solve I want to understand the product go to market all the kind of stuff is it was it the same? And I'm I'm almost more interested in how it evolved. How was their growth and sophistication of really listening to pitches? And then also on deal terms, when they would offer you a term sheet, uh, I personally watched them grow up and get a little bit more sophisticated and up to speed with with better deal terms that were more in favor of entrepreneurial versus the early days, which they may not have been.
1: So, we didn't end up pitching so many local Chinese investors. We we hmm. pitched a, a few, but um, and again, IDG Capital is more typical of what you would expect with a, a global uh, investor. Uh, but the local Chinese we, we met, we, we got a lot of different answers. I mean, for some, uh, uh, being a French guy in China was already a, a no no, uh, not interested. For some, uh, many uh, being focused on global markets outside China was also a no-no. Um, for some others, yeah, it's a B2B side. So, so, so there is a lot of this. I would say overall, in terms of sophistication, if we are talking about talking about truly local investors in, in the early 2010s, it was definitely not the same level as uh, as investors in the valley. I guess these days it's, it's probably, it has definitely improved on the local investor side in terms of terms, uh, some might be a bit more tricky than what you get in Silicon Valley, but usually Silicon Valley is the best in terms of terms um, that investors will propose. Um, so I'm not sure their terms in China were so different from what you could see in Europe, for instance, uh, from a European mm-hmm. uh, VC. Um, so uh, I would not hold that uh, against them at all. Um, and one one thing you probably know, uh, when I remember reading a study some years ago, uh, so so it's not very recent, but maybe five years ago, one of the big differences is that I- if you get a term sheet from a, an American VC, you, I mean, statistically lawyers analyze that you, you are going to execute on this term sheet um, with no material change to the terms in 90% plus of the case. Um, I think that number with Chinese VC um, five years ago was p- closer to 30 percent, 30%, 3-0. Uh, so huge difference, there would be major change in the terms. And that's obviously a big, big issue as um, an entrepreneur because suddenly you have negotiated exclusivity around the term sheet and material terms are changing. So they didn't say if the issue was more on the entrepreneur side or the investor side. Uh, is it the, the entrepreneur who has hidden some stuff or misrepresented some metrics or is it the investor changing their mind? But my impression was that it was more on the investor side that there was an issue. Some investor would try to preempt offer good terms and then pick some issues and decide to materially change the terms over some minor issues. So that was four, five years ago. That's again probably not representative of the best investors. We, we didn't experience that at all but that's what I've seen in some metrics and that's what I also I've heard in uh, in the grapevine.
0: I've read articles from a number of reporters uh, or just tech-interested bloggers who will and have in the past come to China, want to check it out. They come for a few weeks. Uh, they travel around and they go back and they write fairly attention-grabbing headlines like, Beijing, the next Silicon Valley of the world. Did you appreciate it? What are, what are your thoughts on trying to say that Beijing is the Silicon Valley of China? Do you agree or disagree? And your thoughts, generally speaking, on tech and innovation um, in China, is it siloed into a Silicon Valley of China, you know, being in Beijing, or is it widely spread out? And what does that spread look like?
1: Yeah, again, based on statistics, at least if you look at VC investments, um, and I don't have the latest numbers, but last time I checked, it was around 50% in Beijing and 15% 1.5% in um, Shanghai. Um, And the rest split around uh, Shenzhen, obviously, and uh, some other places. So I think it's true in some ways in the sense that Beijing is the center of the tech industry in China. It's the center of the VC industry, VC investment in China. Um, is it Silicon Valley in the sense of exactly the, what made Silicon Valley successful or how it is today? Mm-hmm. Uh, There's obviously some differences, but wh- one commonality, for instance, is the presence of top universities. Uh, you will have, of course, uh, Beijing University and others, Beida. Uh So, so it's, uh, you, you have that as well. Uh, again, in China, all over China, not just in technology, I think there is an entrepreneurial uh, spirit. Um, so I would say, yes, I would agree that there are definitely some very strong uh, similarities. Obviously, Beijing is so different as a cities and uh, Silicon Valley that uh, on that level, the lifestyle and uh, how people work and connect, it's very different. But, but practically, it has, um, it has similar results, I would say.
0: Are there different areas around China that are hubs of different technologies where you might see commerce versus AI? versus VR versus fintech versus, you know, what have you, um, is there a spread?
1: Yeah, I will agree with that. I think that if you think about hardware, for instance, uh, Shenzhen is definitely the, the place to be, uh, mm-hmm. thanks to uh, all the manufacturing happening in Shenzhen mm-hmm. and obviously it's a base for Huawei, um. You take Shanghai. Uh, you have Alibaba, not too far, so e-commerce it's uh, it's big, and obviously you have all these multinational companies mm-hmm. based out of uh, Shanghai. Um, if you go into telecom and app industries, there was a lot more happening in in Beijing. Uh, however, mm-hmm. Xiaomi was from uh, was started in Beijing, so um, so yeah, Be- Be- Beijing is more core for I would say mobile app industry. Mm-hmm. But but you will have some uh, new regions uh, popping up. Um, Dalian has some level of success. There are some others in Western China. Mm. Um, so it's uh, like everywhere there, there, are, there are some new stuff popping up. But uh, yeah. the big stuff it's Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen.
0: Before we look to the future, and I want to ask your thoughts on the future of tech, both inside China and out. I guess which would segue into a discussion around your your podcast that you do as well but i want to take a glimpse back something that's always fascinated me which was the shanzai movement of the you know the cell phones and somebody that you probably know as well as i do david lee uh, who started xinqian in in shanghai and somebody who was a big kind of maker movement early adopter from the chinese perspective talked a lot about and his it was his opinion that it wasn't apple that killed nokia and motorola it was actually the shanzai movement that kind of did all the damage first that apple had the luxury of of uh, kind of taking advantage of how familiar and how impactful from being in the mobile space were you as that shanzai movement started to take over in china
1: apple really brought smartphones to china mm. uh, of course nokia was selling some smartphones in china before but uh, their strength was on the feature funds that that's what made them successful everywhere in the world and yes they had a a a top-tier, super high-end options around smartphones that I I would buy, but most of the world would not buy. Um, But the the move to to smartphones, and at the time I was calling it uh, super smartphone to separate Apple and Android device versus Mm. previous smartphones, because the concept, uh, the approach was very different. It was full-touch, it was an app store, Uh, It was a full, uh, very, um, uh, uh, an excellent uh, native browser uh, to to browse the regular internet, not just mobile internet. So so that combination for me was making a super smartphone. Um, And um, so for me, uh, Apple really killed it on that level. There is no question everywhere in the world, but specifically in China. And, and after that was closely followed by Android. And at the time the Android was Samsung, but it was also HTC and others. But again, step-by-step step in China, it was the rise of the local uh, Chinese smartphone manufacturers that for me brought China to the world stage in terms of number of mobile internet users. Mm-hmm. So we talk about Xiaomi, uh, Oppo, uh, Lenovo, uh, Huawei, all of these guys, uh, Vivo um they're the ones who really brought um smartphone to the masses.
0: Is there an area is there is there an area around mobile that China has almost gifted the world with their innovation? that the rest of the world if they're not already should be paying more attention to and adopting or even you know taking what they're doing and localizing it for here something as an example maybe payments and what they're doing with payments is there industry leading tech and innovation that china has around mobile that the rest of the world should be paying attention to
1: yeah i think so i remember when i moved to china the, the viewpoint was China is mostly copying successful business models and business from the West, and that was true of um, of a Baidu, for instance, uh, copying Google on mostly everything, um, doing it the Chinese way, but really taking inspiration from some, somebody else. Alibaba was already a different beast, in a way you could argue that Amazon copied Alibaba. Uh, but I think especially with mobile it started to change, and China has been leading the innovation on many levels. One reason being that the rest of the world, from Japan to Western Europe to US, already had the regular internet at scale, um, and regular players on on this internet uh, were were not moving that fast to to mobile. So in a way, uh, China uh, leapfrogged uh, the regular internet, the fixed broadband internet, and moved directly to mobile. And so they, they had to invent, because the others were moving a bit slower, I would say. If you remember Facebook, initially, it was not such a great app on Mm. mobile, Uh, they Mm -hmm. invented WhatsApp, they they, they, they acquire it, Um, where um, I think some companies like Tencent with WeChat did a fantastic work to reinvent uh, what could be a messaging app. Uh, They were owning QQ uh, in the past, but they managed to to convert it, I mean, to convert to something new um, and drastically new very very early on. Um, And if you remember, for instance, WeChat initially was uh, focus on uh, the innovation was around um, Tokiwoki function. Uh, so it was about uh, sending voice message. Uh, and step by step, it was not the case anymore. Um, and step by step, they did new innovation. It was around uh, payments. Uh, it was around uh, mini apps. Um, so and, and it was just about the quality of the messaging experience, uh, way better than other tools for people who have used WeChat. It, it, it's still world class. Um, and it's a combination of not social, not just social, but uh, communication tool all in one, where um, in the West you, you have separate tools for different approach. And, and on payment, it's very clear payment and e-commerce. Uh, China is one of the world leader um, in e-commerce. It's probably very clear in payments, electronic payments, it's also very clear. And it's leading so much uh, the rest of the world that it's not even fun to, to compare. Um, so I guess with COVID, Rest of the world is catching up to e-commerce, uh, but uh, China is still leading by far. Um, so the so numbers are pretty crazy in China.
0: Now that you're based in in the U.S., you're in San Francisco, and you look back, what can you say about why why were Huawei and and Xiaomi why did they do so well, and now especially Huawei? Hit and has fallen on a, on a bit of tough times. What is the future, uh, in your opinion, of Huawei and Xiaomi? So, what were they so good at, um and let let them to be so successful, so competitively successful on the global stage against you know the the androids and the apples of the world? And then now with the current situation, what do you think their future aspirations could be?
1: Yeah, it, it's uh I mean both are been widely successful, um, I'm probably a bit more impressed, uh, relatively speaking, by Huawei because they, they are so much bigger, but not just so much bigger, but they, they are doing so many things from uh, building a, a, a telecom equipment products to handsets to building their own, uh, they're building their own chips. So it, it's a, it's a much deeper play at a much bigger scale than Xiaomi. And no no offense to Xiaomi, it's a really successful company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ch- Xiaomi chose a different route, which is I'm going to use off-the-shelf component and try to provide uh, a simpler, good quality UI on top of it, but focus on Chinese customer needs. And I will integrate that with some other hardware and some other services. And I will try to make money from s- other services and, and hardware. So, So a different approach in some ways probably a more risky approach in some point because at some point anybody with some scale can build an off-the-shelf fund based on off-the-shelf components. At some point it's your operational efficiency first and for all. So it's a bit more dangerous game. I think the ones that are more vertically approaching phone manufacturing from Samsung to Huawei to Apple, have a big advantage. uh, They can drive innovation much better. They don't depend on the latest design from Qualcomm to differentiate their phone. Actually, they cannot differentiate their phone because their competitors will have access to the same uh, chip. I'm more bullish on the ones who who control more their own destiny, but obviously in that game, only Apple fully controls their own destiny because they also own the operating system, um, which is not the case for for Samsung and Huawei. So, and, and at the same time, if we look at the bigger, Geostrategic picture, geopolitical picture. Uh, Huawei is doing so much in a way that it's creating uh, risk uh, for itself to be seen as a potentially dangerous actor by some, um, and um, right or wrong. And, um, and I think that that might be on the global stage a more difficult approach, at least within developed uh, markets. I think for Huawei in developing markets, it's a different story. I don't think these issues are raised. But at the same time, there is a question of how you manufacture funds if you have um, huge constraints on some parts of your supply chain. So, so life might get tougher for, for Huawei. And obviously, it can only be solved at a state level, meaning U.S. Um, and China negotiations and discussions and agreements.
0: I feel like I... Should ask if you understand what the what I meant by Shanzai, but I don't know how much of many people in our audience would understand what Shanzai or the whole Shanzai movement is. Would you maybe be able to take a shot at trying to explain to people what was this Shanzai movement that we were talking about?
1: Shanzai movement, at least my my own perspective, was more about uh, the small, the cheaper. Manuf- I mean, manufacturers of cheaper feature funds, usually, at least early on, uh, which started mostly as counterfeit uh, from other funds and products um, and, and built in uh, inside Ch- Shenzhen factories, uh, usually being brandless, uh, or, or with a fake brand, at least initially. Um, and, um, and step by step, I think this started to to disappear and being taken over in a way by uh, the local Chinese smartphone manufacturers.
0: As I alluded to before, you are also now a fellow podcaster, and you have the podcast Tech Deciphered. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what is Tech Deciphered, what do you guys talk about, and where can people find your podcast to go listen to it?
1: Thank you, Ted. Um, yes i'm uh, I'm happy to uh, to be podcasting since uh, the past six months. Um, my show is tech Decipher and we I'm doing that with my co host uh, nuno Goncalves, uh, Pedro um, and basically the idea is to try to decipher what's happening in tech in general tech from a perspective of uh, an entrepreneurial perspective or a big tech perspective or a venture capital perspective and try to to talk about different topics. So each episode or two or three episodes will form a series and we'll talk about different topics from um, uh, SaaS to what happened in the last decade or what we expect to happen in the coming decade. So different topics that we we pick, we don't really have uh, guest speakers, but it's just us, me and uh, Nuno as uh, your co-host talking about these topics and both of us, we have a background. in in VC, entrepreneurship, and definitely tech. And we we both have lived across US, Europe, and
0: um, and Asia. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Stay safe and stay healthy.
1: Thank you so much for your insightful questions. Pleasure to be on your show, Todd. Thank you.
2: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co and be sure to